The reading of scripture today is Exodus verses 1 chapter 20 verses 1 through 6. The first let's have a prayer. You pray with me please. Father in heaven, we approach your throne this morning asking you to fill our hearts with the knowledge of your will and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that we may live a life worthy of you, Father, and may it please you in every way and bear fruit in every good work to become what you would have us to become and to be what you would have us to be. We ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, and all of God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> Chapter 20 of Exodus, verses 1 through 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself or yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall bow down to them. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. However, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thank you, Bob. As we continue our sermon series on the most radical, controversial, countercultural sayings of Jesus, where we look at, did Jesus really say that? This morning we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, where Jesus, the Prince of Peace, tells us that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Turn uh, in your pew Bibles to page 1036. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Listen to the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, 
As we look at these texts and challenge our thought process today, I pray that by your spirit, you might speak through me. That the words of my lips, the meditation of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. That you might reveal more of who you are and who you're calling us to be. In your son's precious name, we pray in all God's people said, amen. What do you tend to worry about? When you become anxious, what is it that makes you anxious? Do you find that you often tend to worry about the same things? Are you worried about what other people think today? I remember when I was in high school, about this time of year, there was this uh, anxiety, this worry that permeated my high school as people were wondering, who am I going to take to homecoming or who's going to ask me to homecoming? What am I going to do? And sadly, people would worry so much that sometimes they wouldn't ask anyone at all and they wouldn't even go. I know there's not a lot of high school students here. I, I see a few in the back. And just real quick tip here. I don't give a lot of dating advice, but I'm going to give this one bit uh, to, to my brother in the back. Uh, just so you know, uh, you know, the prettiest girls often stay home because they don't get asked. I was able, by God's grace, to take the homecoming queen to homecoming my senior year because nobody else asked her, not because I was the best-looking guy. So go ahead and be bold and make the ask. <laughs> Are you worried about what others think? Because if we do, we could get in the state of a bully. Because if anything, we might offend, and that's the last thing we'd want to do. Are you worried about the way others might judge you or reject you? What are you worried about today? Are you worried about things at work? Maybe you're worried about a particular deadline or accomplishing a particular benchmark in your revenues for your company. In order for finances to work out in your business, you may need to reach a certain revenue benchmark with your business to cover expenses, and you're not sure if you're going to make it this year. Are you worried about work today? Are you worried about finances? Are you worried about whether or not you're going to have enough for retirement? With the stock market always going up and down, and it's been going down, but maybe it'll come back up again, retirement can seem uncertain at times. Will we have enough? We can often worry about whether or not we're going to have enough when it comes time to retire. What are you worried about today? Are you worried about your children or your grandchildren? Are you worried that maybe your children aren't hanging out with the right group of kids and if they get in the wrong crowd, you know, bad company corrupts good character and you're concerned about that and so you're you're worried that your child or grandchild may not go in the right direction if they get in with the wrong crowd or or maybe your child doesn't really, isn't a part of any crowd and well, you're worried about the fact that they're often alone and left out. What are you worried about today? Maybe you're worried about whether or not your child or grandchild is going to get into the right college or Or maybe your kid is already in college and you're beginning to worry about, how am I going to pay for college? What are you worried about today? What do you tend to worry about? I imagine all of us, depending on what stage of life we're in, we probably all have different worries at different seasons of life, don't we? The best-selling author and pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, Tim Keller, writes in his book, Gospel in Life, Grace Changes Everything, that our worries can often help identify our hidden idols. The things we spend a lot of time thinking about and worrying about often indicate what we really believe is most important in our lives. We can spend a lot of time worrying about these things because we have allowed these things to become idols that we ultimately use to determine our happiness, our sense of self, even our own sense of identity. According to Tim Keller, an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, or identity. An idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, or identity. 
Anytime we allow something to be more fundamental than God to our happiness, meaning in life, or identity, we've made that an idol. Now, as Christians, we all know that, we're not, that our happiness, our sense of meaning, our, our sense of identity should be rooted in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? I mean, as Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's where our identity should be found. However, despite the fact that we know that, often we tend to worry, don't we? And we make idols that we allow to determine our happiness, our sense of meaning in life, even our own identity if we're not careful. As I've shared in the past in different sermons, um, when I was in high school, my uh, sophomore and junior year, my identity was very much wrapped in my success on the basketball court. If we were winning, I felt good and I was happy. And if I was getting to play a lot and scoring lots of points, then I, I felt good about myself. But when I wasn't, well, I lost my sense of self in my accomplishments on the basketball court. It wasn't until I eventually gave that idol to God, and I began to play for God, that I found true peace. If we find that we're often worried about what other people think, then we have made social acceptance an idol. Rather than seeking happiness, meaning, and our identity in God, we're looking to others to accept us, to give us happiness, meaning, and our sense of identity. Now, we know that according to Genesis, Ecclesiastes, and 2 Thessalonians, that work is a gift. In fact, God tells us that if, if we're able to work, we should work in 2 Thessalonians. God wants us to work. He wants us to, to produce and to be productive. But if we're not careful, because we spend so much time at work, we can allow work to ultimately form our identity and our sense of meaning, can't we? One way to measure if we allow work to become our idol is if our hearts and minds are always focused on work. If, if we're idling and we tend to think about anything, do we tend to run to work? Is that what we tend to think about? Now, work is a good thing, but if we, can, if we become consumed by it, then it's become an idol that we're serving rather than God. An idol is anything that we put before God. If our sense of happiness, security, and our identity is found in money rather than God, then money has become an idol for us. In the Bible, money is not bad. In fact, it's neutral. But the Apostle Paul tells us in uh, uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. People have lied, stolen, and killed for the love of money and what they believe money can buy them. But as that old Beatles song says, money can't buy me love. Money is temporal. It doesn't ultimately satisfy, does it? And yet in our culture today, we are constantly told that, that money will bring us happiness, that things will bring us happiness if we'll just achieve them or receive them. But only God can give us the eternal love and sacrificial love that we so yearn for, can't it? Now, we, now, certainly the Bible encourages us to store up for the winter, that we should save for retirement, that concept of storing up in the winter, that look at the ant, you know, he stores up. And, and, and so we should save for retirement. But we should not let our worries about money and the future consume us, should we? For as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, 24 to 33, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which the today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Other than the kingdom of God, one of the topics that Jesus talks about the most in the Gospels is money. Jesus talked about money so much because he knew that our greatest temptation is to pursue money rather than him. And the best way to counter temptation, of course, the temptation of greed, the temptation of pursuing money rather than God, is actually to give money back to God, to hold loosely to our resources, to know that all as we have, as Psalm 24 one tells us, all that we have is ultimately a gift from God. And so as we give back to God and worship in our tithes and our offerings, we're saying, God, I trust you. I thank you and I trust you to continue to provide for my needs. Unfortunately, in our culture today, so many people make idols of money, don't they? John Calvin, kind of the founder of the Presbyterian Church, writes in his Institutes of the Christian Religion that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We naturally make idols, don't we? Because it's hard sometimes for us to worship an invisible God. And so we give uh, precedence to the visible and the tangible, the things that we can see and the things that we can touch, rather than giving precedence to God. When Moses, as you'll recall, in Exodus chapter 32, went to the very top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, he was gone for several days. And the anxiety of not having Moses around, the people of Israel came to Aaron, who was now in charge, and they said, Aaron, we want you to make us a God so that we can worship. We're not sure what happened to that guy named Moses, but we need a God to deliver us. Even though the people of Israel daily were being fed by manna from heaven, even though Yahweh, the God that Moses served, the the God of, of the Bible, had recently delivered them from the evil hand of Pharaoh by parting the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh's army right before them. How quickly they forgot. And they wanted to have a God that they could touch and they could see. So they they gave their gold to Aaron, and Aaron crafted a golden calf. The people began to worship the golden calf. Huh. Now in the 21st century, we know not to do that, right? I mean... We would never make a golden calf. We're not tempted to make a golden calf and worship it today, are we? In fact, as we read in the Old Testament text, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is to have no other gods. And the second commandment that Bob read just a moment ago is an an extrapolation of the first commandment. Not only are we not supposed to avoid having other gods, we're not supposed to make any carved images or any likeness, anything that is in heaven or above, that is in earth beneath, and worship it. Now, it's interesting to note from our heritage as Presbyterians, during the Reformation, reformers took the second commandment very seriously, making graven images. They actually went to such an extent that they actually destroyed many stained glass windows in the medieval churches uh, of their time. These iconoclasts 
did not want people in the sanctuary to be tempted to worship the images in the stained glass during worship. So most Reformed sanctuaries were very plain, with very little art. Of course, stained glass windows were actually made for a very good purpose. They were created uh, back in the medieval ages, in medieval Europe, to tell biblical stories because people were often illiterate. So they needed the images of the resurrection to see, oh, well, that's what happened. Jesus rose again from the dead. They, they needed that visual image to help them. But Calvin actually argues in the Institutes of the Christian Religion that whatever men learn of God from images is futile. Images of an invisible God, while beautiful, are, Calvin argues, will fall woefully short of communicating the full truth of God's word according to Calvin. Our hearts and minds should be focused on the on the written and the proclaimed word of God, if we want to really know who God is, not the images of a stained glass window. Now, just so you know, to calm any anxieties here, I love our stained glass window. It is awesome. I think it's beautiful. I know we worship Jesus, not the window. But as Presbyterians, we come from a heritage that's very intentional about not worshiping idols or crafting images. We're very sensitive to the sin of idolatry. And so we often downplay images in worship. Now, we may not make graven images of stone and wood and worship them like thousands of people did years ago, but the fact is that if we're not careful, we can easily craft God in images that aren't true to Him. We can easily begin to bow down to idols. We can begin to look to the created things rather than the Creator. We can begin to pursue them rather than him. Now, we know that from Proverbs, children are a gift, a gift from God. But it's very easy as a parent, and I speak as one who knows, it's very easy as a parent to be so focused on our children and the success of our children and their emotional well-being and their, their uh, growth is, and, and, and intellect that we begin to allow that to form our identity. Our, our, our focus becomes them rather than God. In our New Testament text this morning, Jesus is letting us know that to avoid the sin of idolatry, we have to love him even more than we love our own children, even more than we love our own family members. In fact, following Jesus may lead to division in families, according to Jesus. Let's look again at our New Testament text, Matthew chapter 10, 35 to 37. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. As I read that first bit, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. You know, it's interesting to note that uh, the family relationships, the son was always looking right to his, his father to lead him and guide him. But there's a day when the son would have to leave the house, right? And, and the mother's always looking, uh, the daughter's always looking to her mother to lead her. And there's a day when they'd have to leave the house. And actually in ancient times, uh, the first few years of a marriage, uh, the son-in-law, the son would actually, uh, the mother, the new wife, would move into the uh, son's house with the parents, with, her, with his parents. And so the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law would be in the same house. So I don't think Jesus had to do a whole lot of work to help divide the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law <laughs> because of the historical realities of that. So I think people were tracking with him when he said that, but then he moves a little further, and he goes beyond my comfort zone. I don't know about you, but he says, 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And selfishly, I wonder, is that good parenting? I mean, shouldn't I love my kids? I mean, they, they need me so much. They're young and impressionable. God has given them to me. Shouldn't I love them above all other things? Is that good parenting? Well, as 1 John chapter 4 tells us, love comes from God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we read, He who is, um, sorry, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. There is no greater love than this, than the unconditional sacrificial love of Jesus, who came to this earth to pay the price for our sins with his death on a cross so that we could be reconciled to God once and for all. Love comes from God. If we want to be able to love our children with the unconditional sacrificial love of God, then we've got to do all we can to grow in our relationship with Jesus. The model of love, the source of love, for love comes from God. If we want to love our children as Jesus has unconditionally and sacrificially loved us, then we need to center our lives around our relationship with him. So how do we do that exactly? How can we make sure that our lives are centered around our relationship with Jesus in such a way that his love will naturally flow through us to other people? Let's look again at verse 38 of our text. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Simply put, we have to die to ourselves and live for Jesus. We have to submit to the teachings of Jesus. That is how we center our lives around a relationship with Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15 In verses 10 through 11, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The joy of the Lord is found in obeying the commandments of Jesus, by obeying and submitting to the words of Jesus. And we don't do this so that we can earn God's love. We don't obey Jesus so we can earn God's love. We already have God's love. God has already demonstrated how much he loves us by dying on a cross for us. We obey the commandments of Jesus out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us so that his joy may be in us and our joy may be full. His joy is found in submitting to the words of Jesus and seeking to follow him each and every day. If we spend our heart mind, soul, and strength, primarily pursuing the idols of this world, whether that be money, success, acceptance, power, influence, sex, even family, we will come away ultimately unsatisfied because all these things, no matter how good or neutral they may be, are ultimately temporal. They won't last, and they won't fulfill our greatest need for the love, the unconditional love that only God can give. Only Jesus can fully satisfy our deep need for love, and we experience the love of Jesus by centering our lives around Jesus and obeying him, saying, Lord Jesus, not my will, but yours be done today, O Lord. For as Jesus goes on to explain in our text in Matthew 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I want to read that same verse of Scripture 
from Eugene Peterson's The Message. It's a paraphrase of the Bible, but he does a pretty good job capturing that sense of what Jesus is saying in our contemporary language today. Matthew 10, verse 39 from The Message. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you, get, but if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. If our main concern is for ourselves and what we can achieve, we'll never be satisfied. But if we turn our attention away from ourselves and turn our attention towards Jesus and what he wants for our lives, then we will find life, the abundant life that only Jesus can bring. We find the abundant life, the joy of Jesus by submitting our will to Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, not my will but yours be done today, O Lord. In 1955, the movie A Man Called Peter was released. Uh, Raise your hand if you've seen that movie, A Man Called Peter. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should go get it. Uh, You can download it on Netflix. That's what I did. Or uh, I don't know if our church library has A Man Called Peter. You can get it from our church library. You should check it out. Great film. It's the story, the true story about Peter Marshall, who was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate. Uh, He was Scottish, not Irish, but, uh, you know, had that great uh, Baroque uh, accent. And uh, anyway, uh, while Peter was serving in Washington, D.C., his wife, sadly, uh, contracted tuberculosis. She was weak and she was bedridden for 18 months. The doctors had lost all hope that she would ever recover. Throughout her illness, she prayed to God, pleaded with God to heal her. She tried to bargain with God by, by promising God that she would always serve him if he would just heal her this time. She actually went as far to to write letters to anyone she had ever offended or cheated. Uh, She wrote a a letter to an old teacher of hers because she had cheated on a math test. I'm sure the teacher has no idea that she cheated on this math test. But but she wrote and said, I'm sorry that I cheated in your class, you know, 20 years ago. She, She wrote these letters of contrition to people that she had offended, wondering if maybe she was somehow being punished for some past sin or transgression. Finally exhausted. Unwilling to write any more letters, having prayed every prayer she could thought of. She cried out to God in desperation, said, Lord, I'm finished. I'm beaten. God, you decide what you want for me the rest of my life. I've discovered what I want more than my health is you. I want you even more than my health. God, whatever you want, that's what I want because I want you. Once she relinquished her life and her health to God, God began to do a slow physical healing in her life. Ultimately, she was healed by a miracle of God's grace. My brothers and sisters, we will never be healed of the sin of idolatry until we give those idols to God. The next time we find ourselves worrying about finances or worried about what other people think or we're worried about our children or even our grandchildren. The next time we find ourselves moving in that direction, we need to give those things to God and say, Lord, not my will but yours be done. You alone are the thing I want more than anything else. So I give my life to you. Lord, not my will but yours be done. I want you more than anything else. Please join him as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I pray that we might make that our prayer each and every day. Lord Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. We want you more than anything else. For God, we do. We're so grateful for what you've done for us. 
You demonstrated your love toward us and this, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You paid it all. God, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, we now have a reconciled relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the gift of eternal life. You've given us the assurance of eternal life and the resurrection of Jesus. We can see that his victory over sin and death will one day be ours. And so we don't have to live in an anxious state. We can walk by faith and not by sight and trust you, knowing that you love us and you have our good in mind. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to guide us this week and this day and every day, that every day we might faithfully pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I want you more than anything else. For it's in giving you our idols, giving you our worries, giving you our concerns, that we ultimately find joy and peace, and we're able to reflect your love to those we come in contact with. Oh, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. For we want you more than anything else. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said,